Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. And night has fallen on the desert once again, and it's the time of year when the night does not bring quite enough relief. It's the humidity, an unwelcome late summer visitor to our generally dry lands. It's the time of year when the doors won't shut all the way without a struggle, the wooden frames expanding with the moisture. Instead of the cool nights we thrive upon, everything's swampy and vile like the Gulf Coast of Alabama or a theme park in Florida. There's something disheartening about checking the desert weather and seeing 80% humidity. But we survive it most of the time, and soon the air will be crisp and dry once again. Pretty soon. Meanwhile, there are yellow wildflowers blooming on the desert floor, tricked into life by thunderstorms. You might find you can smile or wrap your fingers around a pencil without the skin cracking and splitting as it tends to do in the wintertime. You may also notice how bad people smell as water in the air carries the odor of rock climbers and European tourists right to your nose, which is mostly unaccustomed to such things. It's used to inhaling dust storms and can be thrown into a mild state of shock when assaulted with so many smells. It's a time of year when everything feels a little bit more ridiculous, when a glance at the local news is enough to suggest the heat has gotten the best of people, when weird schemes come to life and you can't help but wonder how tragically they'll fall apart. A marijuana company in California paid a $200,000 deposit to purchase the very little town of Nipton, alongside Mojave National Preserve, just a few miles from the Nevada state line. The company, called American Green, intends to do God knows what. The reports mention vague things such as marijuana tourism, because why not? although intensive agriculture and groundwater usage is hardly what you'd hope to see along the boundary of a national park. After all, it was the hideous construction of the enormous Ivanpah Solar Factory that killed Nipton's hopes of being a much-needed park village of sorts for the Mojave Preserve. A man named Jerry Freeman worked on that little town for decades. He worked toward making Nipton an eco-resort, as it was next to a beautiful national park with no lodging and no food and, most importantly, no saloon. But he died last year, and the town has been up for sale ever since. The asking price? Five million dollars. Now, Nipton is not a bad place. It's got a railroad track that goes right through it. You can listen to the freight trains at night. And I'd gladly live in Nipton for free, but five million is a bit steep for a place in the middle of the desert called the Lonesome Triangle. Now, 
if I had a marijuana company in the Mojave, I'd call it Mojave Green, after our notorious rattlesnake. Now, I know a lot of desert biologists and conservationists, and they are without doubt good people of high moral character, but one thing they like to do is lecture people about calling the Mojave Green a Mojave Green, despite the fact that everybody calls the Mojave Green a Mojave Green, and that's what they've been called for as long as the English language has been spoken upon these arid lands. You know, the first thing any science page or Wikipedia entry always says when you're looking up the Mojave Green is something like incorrectly called the Mojave Green. Some people say you're supposed to call it a Mojave Rattlesnake because not all Mojave Greens have green coloring. Humans may complain a bit about the weather this time of year but these snakes seem to like it just fine. You see more of them, and you see more of them in the evening. Last week I saw something I'd never seen before, a baby king snake. A fast-moving shape across the sandy trail, black and white, five, maybe six inches long. Think of all the times you've been out on the trail, walking a sandy wash and all the animals you've only seen once. There are so many strange and interesting things we can see in the desert, and some people come all the way out to the desert from wherever they live to watch the skies for meteor showers, military aircraft, And many people come out specifically to try to see a UFO. We recently spoke to Brendan Mays about his plans to bring a UFO experience to the high desert. It's, it's not so much a platform as it is a, an underground bunker. Uh, kind of like a, a camera obscura setup where uh, in the safety of an underground chamber you can view the uh, flying saucers, the UFOs, you know, from a, a safe, secure location. You will be safe, and everybody, uh, well, the plan is everybody is to wear a, a monitoring bracelet that uh, keeps track of them at all times. We want to make it as safe as possible for tourists to view UFOs, flying saucers. It's going to be safe. We're going to be there to monitor everything, so uh, nothing gets too out of hand. I was trained as a chemist, uh, a scientist, so, you know, I'm always looking for empirical evidence, and I'm always looking for the hard facts to, to back up uh, any sort of theory or ideas people have, and I haven't come across uh, too much good empirical evidence, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. People believe in something strongly enough, you know, who am I to say that they're wrong? They might know something, they may be able to tap into some metaphysical thing that I'm not too aware of. They might be seeing stuff that's actually there. Maybe I can't see it. I mean, who am I to judge? Who am I to say that these people are wrong? I do have uh, quite a few vacation rentals that are scattered all throughout the valley, uh, which is where I actually plan on putting the bunker. 
a girl from Romania, her name is Vladova, uh, she was the one who actually uh, turned us on to the idea that, that UFOs are real and that there's a great interest around the world in uh, reaching out to uh, civilizations uh, you know, beyond our solar system. She believed that she had been visited uh, by aliens. Uh, she used a term for them. She called them the uh, tall grays. And they clued her in that they're going to be making, they like visiting certain places. And one of them is uh, the deserts of uh, California, the Mojave, and uh, all the way out to that. They like going to places, but there's not necessarily tons of people. She really, uh, she really opened my eyes to a lot of things. One of them was uh, obviously the possibility of, uh, of space travel and time travel, too, is a big component of it. All those people, I guess, from what she told me, that have uh, uh, photoreceptors in their eyes that can see just past the infrared spectrum. And there's a lot of information being exchanged in that particular electromagnetic wavelength. Supposedly, that's the way they're communicating with, uh, I guess we can't see it, but it would be. Uh, akin to flashes of lightning or pulses of light. It's like a rapid transmission of, of, uh, of information. Basically, thought transmissions or thought patterns or thought prints that are transmitted in this very narrow range. And I guess the people that have these particular receptors in their eyes, I think they're in their eyes, but they can pick up these frequencies. And if you, if you, if, if you listen close enough, there is information in there being transmitted in the form of thought patterns. Also referred to as a stroke of genius because it's like having a, a little mini stroke. You might speak in tongues a little bit, left side of your face might go numb. All these things kind of occur uh, uh, in, in the same time. None of this stuff, you know, this is all stuff that people tell me. And these people tell me this stuff and they believe it. And they believe you look them right in the eye and they're telling you the truth. So it's kind of really not for me to judge whether or not it's real. And if they say it's real, it's real. And I haven't experienced it myself. So, you know, who am I to say that this isn't real or not real? They're saying it's real. I believe them. It seemed like for a while there in the 90s and early 2000s that the, uh, the interest in uh, UFOs and alien visitors was kind of on the wane. It seemed to be on the decline. But now it seems to be coming back pretty strong. I gotta say, it's it's kind of heartening. It's uh, it's uh, almost inspirational to see these people uh, searching for uh, for a truth or a, a higher meaning or, or power out there. And I'm just glad to be a part of it. The, the UFO viewing area. We haven't decided exactly where to put it yet. But uh, the, the the basic idea is that it's going to be an underground bunker with a periscope basically, and it's not a real periscope, but it's, it's all uh, cameras and stuff, all set up around the outside, that go, it's like a remote viewing center, and so you're down in the earth about 50 feet in an underground chamber, and uh, there are cameras up top that add a bunch of other sensors, there's electromagnetic wave detectors, there's uh, spectralanograph, We've got gas chromatographs running up there, constantly sampling the air to see what sort of disturbances. We have pressure uh, gradient detectors to see if there's anything flying around, if anything lands on the ground, all this information. The people, instead of being outside where they could perhaps see some sort of anomalous aerial phenomena... Well, they'll be able to see it. There's that down, down inside the bunker we plan on putting 4K monitors all around the walls for like an immersive experience. We also have a, 
microphones actively recording everything on the surface and transmitting it down into the chamber. So it's basically like you're there. It's like you're outside, pretty close. They're gonna be safe, is the point. And I know a lot of the millennials are uh, they're afraid of a lot of things, I've noticed. We uh, run into a little bit of trouble with the county on this. They have a lot of questions. We're kind of thinking that maybe it's better to ask for uh, better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. You know what I'm saying? We're going to build it. We're going to see what kind of kind of response we get. And if, hey, if the response is strong, they're going to let us do whatever we want. Basically, it's going to be like kind of like that Airbnb situation that I had a few years ago. You know, people are against it. People are angry. But you know what? It makes a lot of money. And money, it turns out, is pretty important. And people respond to money. I think we can get retroactive on a lot of our stuff. With the permitting and all that. I'm not too concerned about that. Because we are self-funded. Like I said, I've made, uh, made quite a bit of money uh, buying up ramshackle cabins all around the high desert. Putting on a, a solar panel and a swamp cooler and charging people experience the desert and the magic that, that, that it is. So I haven't really come up with any sort of marketing slogan or elevator pitch to investors because that's not really, uh, it's not really necessary. What we've done is we've uh, hired a team of what are called social influencers. You know, young people who have a certain amount of style or flair, they're good with makeup or maybe they're great at, uh, great at fixing up old camper vans or whatever they do. But these, these kids have a, a lot of pull and a lot of influence. They got, they got YouTube channels, they're doing things on uh, Snapchat. People follow them and they listen to what these kids have to say. So we hired a firm out in Los Angeles, uh, one of these uh, social influencing agencies. They've uh, promised us that they're gonna get, they're gonna get people excited and they're gonna get people involved. And they have a proven track record with getting people into all sorts of things. It's an immersive experience. It's like an immersive virtual reality. So it's a lot more than just sitting out in the desert. And, you know, sitting out in the desert has a lot of risks. There's the risks of being bitten by a, by a Gila monster. There's uh, the risks of uh, maybe a rattlesnake is going to bite you in the middle of the night. There's all these uh, kind of uh, disconcerting, I'd say, to a lot of these young people. I mean, they're interested in it, but they don't want to get too close because they're not sure how they're going to react to it. They're going to get bitten. Are they going to get scared? They're not sure. So... What we're trying to give to them is saying, we're going to shield you from all of the crazy critters out there. So you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. No night owl is going to come down and answer by the back of the neck. And that's not what this is about. This is about safety and security. Well, when we originally tried to do this, we were trying to find some of the, uh, some of the unused uh, missile silos they had out in uh, the northern Mojave and uh, in an area, what is commonly referred to as Area 51. So we're looking for uh, abandoned silos, we're looking for abandoned hardened uh, military uh, bases, but the uh, military didn't want to play ball with us, so we're going to try to recreate the experience. I've been to a couple of the uh, old airplane and aerospace ready yards out, uh, out in Mojave, picking up little pieces here and there, control panels, wiring rooms, you know, to give them uh, an immersive experience and make it feel as if they were in some sort of a Cold War installation. So we're, we're going for the experience since we can't get the exact real thing.
I want to tell you something about Elvis Presley, and it's very important, so I want to make sure I get it right. Elvis Presley was a person who was very, very concerned about his hair. At every phase of his career, the height and heft of his hair was remarkable. His hair started going white when he was in his late 20s. As a result, he had to dye it black. And this is why rockabilly people insist on dyeing their hair black to this day. Elvis Presley's hairdresser was a guy named Larry, and he was also a New Age mystic, as your hairdresser often is. He knew about everything. He knew about tarot cards and astrology. He knew about past lives, transcendental meditation, ghosts. Well, he and Elvis got in the car and went up to Joshua Tree during a break from Elvis's big comeback engagement in Las Vegas. And sure enough, they saw a classic triangle, a big black triangle, hovering over them on the road with the white beam of light. They were impressed. They were probably on more pills than a pharmacy has. But they believed it and they were moved by it. A week later, they were both back at Graceland, outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And in broad daylight, they saw that same ship over Graceland. It all started to add up for Elvis Presley. When he was eight years old, he started having visions of being in some sort of shared communication with entities of some kind. It was only after his mother died that his father, Vernon, told him that on the night Elvis Presley was born in Tupelo, in a sharecropper's shack, an oval-shaped thing flew out of the clouds, hovered over the house, and shined a beam on the house. They knew about Elvis from the start. A Marine tells the story of taking the back way to Las Vegas. This is from 29 Palms to Las Vegas. You can get there barely touching an interstate, which means it's also a very beautiful drive. And this one goes through Mojave National Preserve, a little visited part of the national park system. But Marines generally know it as a shortcut. And a lot of people in Palm Springs call it the back way to Vegas as well. You come out of the base, you go through Wonder Valley, you get on Amboy Road. Then you come across the railroad tracks, and there's Roy's, the old one-time 24-hour motel, cafe, diner, gas station on Route 66. The place had so many customers when that was the road that they had an entire town just for the staff behind it. 24 hours a day, you could get a chicken fried steak, you could get your oil changed, you could get your tires switched. But then the interstate opened, just 
18 miles to the north. And the day the interstate opened, Roy's business was killed. The owner was so furious, he went around in a bulldozer knocking down half the town. What's there today is what he forgot to knock down. Well, the Marine goes by Roy's. And then he turned left on Kelbaker Road. And it was here that he came across a scene that didn't seem right at all. It was a red Miata, one of those little convertible sports cars, spun out in the middle of the road. There were suitcases knocked all around, a purse, clothes knocked around. And then on the blacktop, right on the yellow line, were two people, face down, spread out, hurt or maybe dead. He came to a stop. He got his sidearm. And he walked over to be a good Samaritan. As dark as it was, from his headlights, he caught the reflection of eyes watching from the side of the highway. And as he turned around and started running back to his car, he saw these people rise up from the brush and run towards him. He got in the car and nearly chopped off his own foot in the process, slammed the door, weaved around the suitcases and the junk, around the Miata, around the people who were now getting up on their knees, apparently dead no longer. He says he drove about 110 miles an hour the rest of the way, which is kind of a feat on a twisting two-lane. Alice Salter from Page, Arizona writes, I was surprised to find Desert Oracle now has a radio show. Can you explain why? Well, Alice, in the summer of 1983, 34 years ago, I had saved up enough money to drive around America for a month or two. Just six months prior, I discovered the writer Edward Abbey and was now like a religious pilgrim driven to frenzy and irrational behavior, except my destination wasn't Mecca or Bethlehem. It was Arches National Park, the former Arches National Monument, where Ed Abbey had been a seasonal park ranger and where his book Desert Solitaire takes place. Well, I wandered around that part of Utah for as long as I could, and one morning I realized there were 750 miles between me and a promised arrival at the home of some family friends, oil field workers, who were expecting me in a tiny West Texas town called Kermit, a place of about 5,000 souls on the western edge of the Odessa-Midland metropolitan area such as it is. A lot of driving would be necessary to get there in two days, and it's one of the most dramatic drives in the world through country that seems too ridiculous to be real. Slick rock and arches, junipers scattered on red mountains. 
The Four Corners is a land of magic and terror. Between Dove Creek and Cortez in the southwestern corner of Colorado, I watched a monstrous thunderstorm that stretched a hundred miles across the plateau, the San Juan Mountains blurring into the purple storm. I was searching the radio dial, searching for something, something with a message. I'd go through static and farm reports, and then this manic hillbilly guitar jumping out of the dashboard speaker with impossible levels of reverb, someone howling with weird abandon. There were several numbers like this, primal rockabilly about flying saucers and knife fights, and then the music crashed to an end and the howls continued, but from the DJ, his voice layered over itself from the modulation and the lightning strikes crashing through the AM signal, lightning strikes from the thunderstorm now right on top of me. For two or three harrowing hours, I crept southward on U.S. Highway 666 long since renamed by politicians who knew to be scared of the devil. Gallup, New Mexico was somewhere on the other side of these giant white bolts exploding around me, a heavy mix of hail and rain making it impossible to steer with any confidence. A monstrous wedge appeared in the sky backlit by the bluish-white electric glow of another crashing bolt. This was the Shiprock, the remains of an ancient volcano within the Navajo Nation. While the storm had settled into a steady rain just as I rolled into town at the crossroad with Route 66, I found a motel called the Thunderbird, and outside on the shoulder of the road was a phone booth, but the glass shot out, and when I walked out there to make a call, I saw a knocked-over highway sign. Two signs, actually, one of them a coveted U.S. Route 66 marker. Well, I got the toolbox and the socket wrench set from my dear old international scout, and I crouched in the highway weeds as the rain poured down, and I brought those signs home. Route 66 officially vanished a year later and became the subject of many nostalgic television features and newspaper articles. But the thing I remember so well so many years later is that summer night madman disc jockey on that station out of Durango, and I figured someday... One way or another, I'd like to do that kind of radio show that I'd like to come across on some lonesome desert drive. Well, Route 66 didn't disappear for good. It had too big a place in the story of America. And now you can drive many desert sections of the old U.S. 66, complete with old-fashioned highway signs and including a nice two-lane stretch of the Mother Road that runs right through Mojave Trails National Monument. Stop at Roy's and tell him the Desert Oracle sent you. That is about it for us tonight on Desert Oracle Radio. You can subscribe to the podcast version of the broadcast on iTunes. You can listen on TuneIn, the radio app. If you live in the high desert, you can listen on 107.7 FM. That's KCDZ FM in Joshua Tree, California. We're brought to you by Desert Oracle Magazine. It's a pocket-sized field guide to the mysterious and grand American desert. You can find the latest issue around the Southwest. Try Sedona Outdoors on Main Street in Sedona or the California Visitor Center in Yucca Valley or in Joshua Tree, the Coyote Corner. Thursday, September 7th, we do live campfire stories at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs. Write to us, radio at desertoracle.com. And good night from the voice of the desert.